0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. We've got two book bites left in our countdown. Today at number two, effortless, make it easy to do what matters by Greg McKeown. Does life really have to be so hard? Not according to Greg McKeown, author of the 2014 runaway bestseller Essentialism. In his follow-up, Effortless, Greg offers an inspiring approach to life. The path of least resistance, he says, is the one we should be on. As Next Big Idea Club curator Daniel Pink put it, in a world beset by burnout, Greg McKeown's work is essential. Here's Greg.
1: Hi, my name is Greg McEwen. I'm the author of two New York Times bestsellers, Essentialism and Effortless. And I'm also the host of the podcast, What's Essential? I'm going to share with you five of the big ideas from my most recent book, Effortless. Big idea number one, the two paths to getting results. Not long ago, my family and I moved into an idyllic community. White picket fences line the streets. There are no street lamps. There are more horse trails than roads. Our children spent long days playing outside with our happy dog, riding horses, playing tennis. We took morning walks and bike rides. We planted a garden with apple trees, grapevines, and melon plants. In short, we found ourselves living in a little piece of heaven on earth. One of our daughters, Eve, seemed especially to thrive. She is a slim, brown-eyed, blonde-haired girl with a mischievous grin. She simply cannot stay cross. Even when she tries to be grumpy, she can only do it for a few seconds before bursting into laughter. She loves to be in nature. Some friends of ours still recall how she climbed to the top of their massive 50-foot fir tree the first time she visited their home. She ran barefoot whenever she could wrestled with her younger brother on the trampoline for hours at a time, named the chickens, carefully caught lizards by the dozen, and gently released them. Eve read endlessly, devouring books about horses, bees, and insects. Her favorite was a series about a vet's adventures with farm animals and their owners in Yorkshire, England. She wrote about her own adventures in a journal every day. Once, when I took Eve with me on a business trip, I called Anna my wife, from the airport and told her Eve literally hadn't stopped talking since we left an hour and a half before. It was animated, scintillating conversation, punctuated with laughter. Then Eve turned 14. She hit a growth spurt, began to feel tired a lot, talked to us less, and took longer to do her chores. So pretty age-appropriate behavior, or so we thought. On a routine visit with a physical therapist, he noticed Eve didn't respond properly to basic reflex tests. He took Anna aside and said, you might want to see a neurologist, and we didn't have to be told twice. From there, her symptoms worsened on a daily basis. Within just a few weeks, she could answer only in one-word sentences, spoke in a slurred and monotone voice. We noticed the right-hand side of her body responded at a slower speed than the left-hand side. It took her two full minutes to write her own name, hours to eat a meal. The light, once so vibrant and bright in Eve, dimmed. Then it seemed to go out entirely when she was hospitalized after a major seizure. What made the situation worse was the doctors couldn't explain any of it. They could not offer us even the beginning of a diagnosis. Every day, brought more visits to respected neurologists who looked at us with furrowed brows and in one instance, literally shrugged his shoulders. Tests and tests and more tests. All of them came back negative. The doctors still couldn't find anything, not even a clue. To watch our vivacious daughter go into an almost constant free fall and to have no explanation is the stuff true suffering can be made of. With each unfruitful doctor's visit, each inconclusive test, it became harder and harder to see the road ahead. The challenge before us didn't seem hard. It felt utterly impossible. All we wanted in the world was for Eve to get better. That wasn't just the most important thing. It was the only thing. And what came into view for me in that situation was that there were two paths for getting there. One made this challenging situation heavier. The other made the challenging situation lighter. And we had to choose which path to take. Maybe this choice seems obvious, but it wasn't. As parents, our instinct was to attack the problem full force from all directions, worrying about it 24 seven, reaching out to every neurologist in the country, meeting with doctors one after another, asking them a million questions, pulling all-nighters, poring over medical journals and Googling for a cure or even a diagnosis, researching alternative medicine as a possible option. What the gravity of the situation called for, we assumed, was near superhuman effort. But such an approach would have been unsustainable while also producing disappointing results. Mercifully, we were aware of and took the second path we realized that the best way to help our daughter and our whole family through this time was not by exerting more effort. In fact, it was quite the opposite. We needed to find ways to make every day a little easier. Why? Because we needed to be able to sustain this effort for an unknown length of time. It was not negotiable. We simply could not now or ever burn out If your job is to keep the fires burning for an indefinite period of time, you can't throw all the fuel on the flames at the beginning. So we decided there were things we wouldn't do, things we couldn't do. The situation was hard enough without us making it harder. We wouldn't torture ourselves with unanswerable questions. We wouldn't worry ourselves sick by imagining worst case scenarios. We wouldn't complain that the doctors didn't have the answers. We wouldn't live in denial or tell ourselves, it's not so bad. We wouldn't try to force the timetable. We wouldn't ask, why us? We wouldn't overanalyze every article from medical journals that well-intentioned people sent to us. We wouldn't try to do it alone. Instead, we decided to focus on the simple things, the easy things, the things we could control. We got around the piano and sang. We went on walks. We read books. We played games. We looked for the positive and pointed it out. We prayed together. We ate dinner together. We toasted each other. We told stories. We laughed. We were grateful. We did these things each day and almost immediately noticed a magical force at play. We felt less burdened. We were less exhausted. We didn't burn out. Of course, the worry didn't disappear entirely. And if this story were a Disney movie... This would be the part where I'd write about how Eve was healed and we all lived happily ever after. But after a round of successful treatments, she started to regress. The troubles returned. How could we have dealt with this setback had we depleted all our energy the first time around? It's been two years now, and Eve continues to get better. She smiles, laughs, and jokes. She walks, runs, and wrestles. She reads, she writes. She is thriving again. So what did I learn from this experience? There are two paths, two ways to achieve results. The first path is the path of suffering, of stress, strain, and struggle. The second is the effortless path. Whatever has happened to you in life, whatever hardship, whatever pain, however significant those things are, they pale in comparison to the power you have to choose what to do now. So in each moment, we have a choice. Do I choose the heavier path of suffering or the lighter, effortless way? Big idea number two, make a done-for-the-day list. It seems to me that there are two types of people in the world right now. There are people who are burned out, and then there are people who know they are burned out. And one of the reasons we find ourselves in this situation is that the pandemic has created an environment with no boundaries. It's not like there were a lot of boundaries before, but now even the physical geographical boundaries, the commute, the office, have gone. And in their place, a 24-7 Zoom, eat, sleep, repeat world, where we look at our Fitbit at the end of the day, and it's literally 300 steps, where we can hardly tell the difference between what day it is, where people send as many emails on Saturday and Sunday as they do through the week. What can we do about this? Well, one thing we can do is to apply a done-for-the-day list. A done-for-the-day list is not a list of everything we theoretically could do today or a list of everything we would love to get done. These things will inevitably extend far beyond the limited time available. Instead, This is a list of what will constitute meaningful and essential progress. As you write the list, one test is to imagine how you will feel once this work is completed. Ask yourself, if I complete everything on this list, will it leave me feeling satisfied by the end of the day? Big idea number three, use effortless inversion. Carl Jacobi was a German mathematician and he developed a reputation as someone who could solve especially hard and intractable problems. He learned that one of the easiest ways to do that was to invert, always invert. To invert means to turn an assumption or approach upside down, to work backwards, to ask what if the opposite were true? Inversion can help you discover obvious insights you have missed because you're only looking at it from one point of view. It can highlight errors in our thinking. It can open our minds to new ways of doing things. Kim Jenkins is someone who used effortless inversion to transform the way that she got important things done. She's the kind of person who was up at 4 a.m. photoshopping for a youth event the next day at her church. She's the kind of person who felt incredibly guilty if she even took time to eat lunch. She felt that if she wasn't exhausted, she was being incredibly selfish. She was guilty of holding on to a paradigm that simply says, the answer to every problem is to work harder and harder. I suggested to her that she invert this problem and ask instead the question, what if this could be easy? What if this could be effortless? What if there's a simpler way To get the result I'm trying to achieve. And armed with those questions, the inversion of how she'd handled things in the past, she got a call from a university professor who asked her to get her videography team to come and record his entire semester. She was ready to jump into action. This was a paradigm she was familiar with. Let's overachieve. This will wow him. I'm going to get a whole team in there. We'll have multiple camera angles. We'll edit it all together. We'll have intros and outros, graphics, music. And then she realized, oh, I'm operating out of the old paradigm. I've got to break with that paradigm in order to break through to a higher level of contribution without burning myself out. So she explored for just a few minutes with the professor what an easier solution might look like. It turned out that this was entirely for one student who would miss a few classes because of an athletic commitment. The solution they came up with together was that another student in the class would just record the classes this student would miss and send it to him on his iPhone. The professor was delighted. He hadn't thought of such a simple solution. And Kim walked away really surprised. She had just saved four months of effort from an entire team working on this problem for just a few minutes on the phone. And that is the power of using effortless inversion. Big idea number four, find your effortless pace. In the midst of the great age of exploration, in the early years of the 20th century, the most sought after goal in the world was to reach the South Pole. It had never been done before in all of recorded human history, not by Pythes, the first polar explorer in 320 BC, not by the Vikings a 1,000 years later, not by the Royal Navy in all its prowess during the years of the Great British Empire. In November 1911, two rivals for the Pole aimed to be the first to achieve this elusive goal, Captain Scott from Great Britain and Amundsen from Norway, also known as the Last Viking. They began within days of each other One team would be victorious, the other would not return. To read their journals, however, you would never guess that the two teams made almost the exact same journey under the exact same conditions. On good weather days, Scott would drive his team to exhaustion. On bad weather days, he would hunker down in his tent and lodge his complaints in his journal. On one such day, he wrote, our luck in weather is preposterous makes me feel a little bitter to contrast such weather with that experienced by our predecessors. On another, he wrote, I doubt if any party could travel in such weather, but one party could. On a similar day of blizzard, Amundsen recorded in his journal, it has been an unpleasant day, storm, drift, and frostbite, but we have advanced 13 miles closer to our goal. On December 12th, 1911, the plot thickened. Amundsen and his team got within 45 miles of the South Pole, closer than anyone who had ever tried before. They had traveled some 650 grueling miles and were on the verge of winning the race of their lives. And the icing on the cake, the weather that day was working in their favor. Amundsen wrote, going and surface as good as ever. Weather splendid, calm with sunshine. There on the polar plateau, they had the ideal conditions to ski and sled their way to the South Pole. With one big push, they could be there in a single day. Instead, it took three days. Why? From the very start of their journey, Amundsen had insisted that his party advance exactly 15 miles each day, no more and no less. The final leg would be no different, rain or shine, Amundsen would not allow the daily 15 miles to be exceeded. While Scott allowed his team to rest only on the days when it froze and pushed them to the point of inhuman exertion on the days when it thawed, Amundsen insisted on plenty of rest and kept a steady pace for the duration of the trip to the South Pole. This one simple difference between their approaches can explain why Amundsen's team made it to the top while Scott's team perished setting a steady, consistent, sustainable pace was ultimately what allowed the party from Norway to reach their destination. And get this, without particular effort. According to the biographer, Roland Hunford, without particular effort, they accomplished a feat that had eluded adventurers for millennia. Of course, not every day was easy, but even under the harshest of conditions, The goal was doable thanks to that simple rule. They would not exceed 15 miles a day, no matter what. We can apply a similar rule in our own lives. We can establish upper and lower bounds. We can simply use the following rule, never less than X, but never more than Y. If you want to hit your sales numbers for the month, never less than five sales calls a day, but never more than 10 sales calls a day. If you want to complete the first draft of a book, never less than 500 words a day, but never more than 1,000 words a day. If you want to finish reading Le Miserables in six months, never less than five pages, never more than 25 pages a day, and so on. And similarly, in time of the pandemic, we can have an upper bound on the amount of time we spend working at all. I was inspired by Ben Bergeron, a coach to elite athletic performers, to have a set end time to the end of my day, an upper bound. I chose five o'clock and just to make it playful, when that time comes, I walk out of the office and announce it like a town crier to my family. It's five o'clock or it's 5.01 or 4.59. And that playful accountability has helped me stay consistent. And that consistency has helped me to be able to stay at the effortless pace. Big idea number five, invest in the long tail of time management. John opened a desk drawer to take out a pen. When the drawer stubbornly refused to shut, he went through his usual dance, opening it as far as it would go, shaking it. Closing and opening it again, moving things around. This went on for a while. Intrigued, his colleague Dean Aitchison, a mentor to productivity guru David Allen, asked what was going on. It turned out that a pencil tray was in the way. How long had it been a problem? Two years. Two years! I have been bothered by that every single day. How long would it take to solve? Two minutes. John solved it right then. Why do so many of us put up with problems, big and small, for so much longer than we have to? Because on any given day, it usually takes less time to manage a problem than to solve it. In John's case, while 30 seconds of jostling was annoying, it took less time than dislodging the tray and resolving the problem. But looking at the equation from a longer-term perspective changes our calculation. Once we add up the cumulative costs of the time and frustration from today plus tomorrow plus hundreds of tomorrows after that, suddenly it makes sense to invest in solving the problem once and for all. Using that time frame, fixing that draw was an absolute bargain. Two minutes worth of effort to prevent hundreds of future frustrations. An impressive time rebate. This is what I call the long tail of time management. When we invest our time in actions with a long tail, we continue to reap the benefits for a long period. Sometimes we get so used to the little irritations, like a pencil tray lodged in a desk drawer, it doesn't even occur to us to do anything about them. Even if we are bothered by them and we complain about them, we still don't really see them as a problem worth fixing. But what we often fail to recognize is that some tasks that seem, well, not worth it, in the moment may save us 100 times the time and aggravation over the long run. To break this habit, ask yourself, one, what is a problem that irritates me repeatedly? Two, what is the total cost of managing that over several years? Three, what is the next step I can take immediately in a few minutes to move towards solving it? The goal is to find the most annoying thing that can be solved in the least amount of time. Once you start asking these questions, you'll start noticing the small actions you can take to make your life easier in the future. Let me conclude with one final story. It's a touching story that I came across in my research for Effortless. It's the story of a mother who was with her dying son in the hospital. It was at the very end and she knew it. And she climbed up in the bed to be with him. And then in that moment, when he was no longer fully here, but not yet fully there, he opened his eyes and said quite suddenly, Oh, mum, it's all so simple. It's all so simple. And then he died. Those were his last words. That was his singular message to her and to us. In the end, when we see our lives in perspective, perhaps we will all understand it's all so simple. So ask yourself, how am I making things harder than they need to be? When you have your answer to that question, you will have something of great value. You will know what to do next. It is as simple, it is
0: as easy as that. Thank you, Greg. I'm gonna work harder at working less. This plays to my strengths, actually. Greg was on this podcast a few months ago to talk about his book. I highly recommend that conversation. You can find it in the feed or by following the link in the episode notes. You know what's effortless? Downloading the Next Big Idea app. You just go to your app store, search for Next Big Idea, and a minute later, you're enjoying summaries of the best new books read to you by the authors themselves. There is no easier way to get smart fast. With BookBytes, you can read a book and the time it takes to find the chapstick you know is hidden somewhere in your car's center console. On our next episode, we conclude this countdown with, well, I don't want to spoil it. I'm Rufus Griscom. See you tomorrow.